Hey, welcome back everyone to the second shift from Rabbi Angel. Uh, the major introduction was on uh, two days ago's Shi'ur, but in the two days since he last gave Shi'ur, it has racked up close to 200 views on YouTube, which is really a testament to the excellent content uh, Rabbi Angel puts out. Um, so without further ado, if that's okay, we invite Rabbi Angel to address us um, on the topic of the Akeda. Okay, thank you so much. And again, thank you to the Chabura and to the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals for putting together this series. It's really a privilege to be part of this group. I mean, the Chabura has done so much in the last three years, and I'm grateful to be an overseas participant uh, in all of your wonderful work. Uh, the Akedah is a tough topic to talk about on any level, the binding of Isaac. Uh, but the good news was that until a couple hundred years ago, it was not as hard to talk about. Uh, and if I were giving the shiur 400 years ago, we may not have been able to use Zoom, but I would have been able to tell you, look, Avraham Avinu rose to his test of faith, did a fantastic job. God obviously had no intentions of actually, oh no, I'm still hard to hear even with the thing. I'll try turning up the volume. Is this any better? A little. I don't know if there's a way to potentially angle the uh, microphone. I think, I think that's what it is, because now I hear you very loud. So I'll just try to get this close to my mouth. Uh, yeah, that's very good, I think. Okay, good. That's okay. Thank you. Okay, so I shall try to, to keep it much better. Okay, good. Thank you. All right, so it happens that when I first finished Smicha, I finished rabbinical school, uh, I was still in that world of the yeshiva bubble. And so I was a nice young rabbi. I'm still a nice young rabbi, but then I was a nice younger rabbi. And I was giving some adult education shiurim in my synagogue. And of course, the Akedah came up at some point. So I gave a shiur that was perfect for a yeshiva environment, where I simply went through the classic medieval commentaries. I did exactly, I prepared really hard. I did everything I was hoping to do. I covered all the major issues about divine tests and all these other things. Uh, and people followed, it was, you know, it was clear, everything, everything seemed good, but I felt that something was terribly wrong. And I couldn't figure out what it was until years later. And I was like, ah, oh, that's why I failed that shiur. The, the shiur was an abject failure, simply because everybody in the room was living in the, at the time, the very late 20th century. And in the very late 20th century, you cannot give a shiur on the Akedah without asking, how could God command this, even though we know it's a test? And how could Avraham obey so quickly, given that it was terrible? The commandment is terrible. We know that it's a test, so we know nothing bad will happen. Uh, but all the same, can't give a shiur without addressing that. So that's, I figured out that was my problem. And so since then, I've tried to prepare a shiur that addresses those questions, which end up being a much more modern sy system of commentary for the most part, because most of our classical commentaries were not bothered by this question. But until, until the 18th century, we would basically just go through the text, show, talk about what a divine test is. We would talk about how Avraham rose to the occasion, was amazing. You might even focus somehow on Yitzchak also rising to the occasion, even though he's the minor character of the story. And then everything would be fine. But then came the 18th century. It really was the 18th century. And it wasn't a Jewish commentator. It was the great philosopher, Immanuel Kant. Kant is the one who was the game changer, where he comes along and says, Avraham failed the test. And the reason why he failed is, this is how he thought about it. 
When you have a vision at night, it might be prophecy, it might not be prophecy. Whereas you know that murder is evil. So Abraham should have stopped and said, wait a second, I know that murder is wrong, but I'm not positive that this was prophecy. And therefore, by going ahead with it, without any further questions, Abraham fails the test. So this approach, which is entirely new in the 18th century, is one that really rocked the world, I have to say. Kant definitely has influenced who knows how many people into thinking some form of that idea, but only ever since. Before him, nobody was thinking this way, or almost nobody was thinking this way, because everybody took for granted that Abraham passed the test. Now, the reason why everybody thought that Abraham passed the test is because he did. Kant is wrong. Uh, the, 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 important, the important thing to note here is that if you are a philosopher whose last name begins with the letter K, you are going to have a difficult day today. Okay, so just be forewarned. So down here in verse 12, I'll read the English, but, you know, the, the obvious, this is just chapter 12. This is the story of the Akedah. So what matters for us, and he said, this is the angel talking to Avraham after the fact, do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your favored one, from me. All right, so if the angel, who is God's representative, says that Abraham did a great job, then Abraham did a great job, and Kant is mistaken. He might have an interesting ideology, but you cannot say that this is the meaning of the story. This is Kant judging the value of the story. In other words, he thinks the value of the story is wrong. He just doesn't want to admit it that way. Okay, so a question that comes up in the wake of Kant is, look, at least when God tells Avraham that he's, Hashem is going to destroy Sodom, a wicked city, Avraham is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Before we destroy anybody, let's talk about this, right? Maybe there are 50 righteous people. No, how about 45, 40, all the way down to 10? Avraham has the ability to protest things. So why doesn't he at least protest here? If he's willing to protest on behalf of Sodom, why can't he at least protest for his own son? So that question already is a valid question and requires a much more global understanding of, of the Breshit narrative of Avraham. So there was one summer, it was the year 2001, I was in Israel by myself, and it was the, yet another one of those years where there was an awful lot of terror, like an unusual amount, to the point where the country was desolate. I mean, I stayed in a hotel, I think six rooms were occupied out of, 130, out of 133. It was really mamash desolate, it was terrible. But I was there. So one day I sat in my hotel room and I'm like, I have to solve this problem of Abraham not protesting. So I remember sitting there mapping out the whole narrative and it works out very nicely. Here's, the, here's what I came up with on that day. Uh, and it still works for me now. I have reevaluated it to make sure I'm still satisfied with the answer. If you go through all the Abraham narratives, whenever God commands Abraham to do something, Abraham does it immediately. Circumcise yourself and all the men of your household. Okay. Leave your country and go somewhere else. Sure. Even the hardest one for him, banish Ishmael, which he really did not want to do. You have to listen to Sarah. Okay. Once God commands it, done. And so when God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son, well, that's, that's a commandment. So he up and does it just like he does for every other commandment. In contrast, when Abraham gets information or promises, then Abraham sometimes says thank you, but sometimes reserves the right to question, protest, etc. And that's part of the prophetic protest tradition that's 
central to what the Torah is all about. And so the Torah is setting out a message that we always obey the law of God, but we're allowed to ask a billion questions. If we don't understand things, then we're not expected to understand things. Not even Abraham understood things. And so that's why he protested for Sodom. He wasn't commanded to do anything. God was giving him information. He didn't like that. So he, he said, that sounds unjust to me. So he had to work that out with God. But in the Akedah could be as unjust as you like, but it was a commandment. Okay. So once we have that settled in the text, we can move on. So what is the message of the Akedah? So one commentary in the medieval period, I quoted him on Monday as well in a very different way. Let's get over to chat. There we go. Maybe. Um, stop sharing. Let's see if I can see the chat. There it is. Hello. Okay. So if Yosef Ibn Kaspi, who lived in 14th century Provence. He raised properly the issue that there's a context here. When we hear a commandment like this, we are rightly horrified. God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son. We're horrified by the commandment. But when Abraham heard the commandment in his real time, uh, he hadn't gotten the Torah yet, and uh, many people practiced child sacrifice in that world. It wasn't such a foreign idea to him as it is to us. And so Rav Yosef Ibn Kaspi says, when Abraham hears this commandment, it sounds extreme, but if God is telling him to do it, then okay, God is telling him to do it. And that's simply the way that it is. So the primary test of the Akedah in the context of the story is not the murder part, even though that's pretty steep also. It's not even the murder of one's son part. The problem of the, the, problem of the Akedah in the context of the story is, for all these years, God keeps promising Abraham, your descendants are going to inherit the land. Okay. And Abraham keeps on asking, but wait a second, I don't have any descendants. Then finally, he has Yishmael and thinks the problem is solved, only to find out he can't keep Yishmael around, but rather Yitzchak will be his heir. Okay, Abraham is not thrilled, but Yitzchak is his heir. But then if God says, sacrifice him, that undermines a divine promise. That totally belies what, the, what God has been telling him all this time. You're going to have Yitzchak, and Yitzchak is going to be your, your heir. But now he's not his heir, because he's going to be dead. Okay, that's where the test is. Vayikra Rabbah, Midrash already there says this, and many later commentaries follow suit. Okay, so the context, the context of the story in the ancient world is child sacrifice was certainly a, a widely practiced thing. And the test of the Akedah is primarily not the killing, but the issue of heirs. If Yitzchak is supposed to be his heir, how is this going to work? Okay, so Rav Kook now gets involved. Now we move to the 20th century. Rav Avraham Yitzchak Kook, the first Ashkenazic chief rabbi in what became the state of Israel. He died in 1935. He died shortly before the founding of the state of Israel. He says that God has to achieve something here in the Akedah, which is very important. He's trying to eat his cake and have it too. God's problem here is like this. Pagans worship their gods and they sacrifice their children. But God's plan is to just have us sacrifice bulls and sheep. So that's expensive, don't get me wrong. But if you're wealthy, you can handle that. And one bull is replaceable with another one if you're very wealthy. If you're less wealthy, a sheep is replaceable with another sheep. Can't handle that? Go with the birds. Go with a fistful of flour. You can afford something. Okay, and you could reach the altar that way. 
But a child is irreplaceable. You don't sacrifice a child and say, oh, I hope I get another one. Because that child who's now dead, is absolute, he is of absolute value. So pagans would be able to tell the descendants of Abraham, we're more dedicated to our gods than you are to your God. We sacrifice our children. What do you do? So God demonstrates through the Akedah, but we're willing to sacrifice our children. Just God doesn't want that. The willingness is just as dedicated as that of a pagan. But the difference is that God finds a child sacrifice to be abhorrent, and as a result, doesn't want us to do that ever. Legislation in the Torah that outlaws it exactly achieves that goal. God teaches us that child sacrifice is abhorrent, which is precisely why we are horrified by this story. Uh, but at the same time, the demonstration is, okay, Abraham was willing to do this. So too, we would give anything to God, but God wants us to not sacrifice people. Okay, uh, I'll tell you, I'll share with you one of my great life regrets. I have two, but, but one is not relevant to Kashiro. The other one is a number of years ago in 2009, my wife and I were pregnant with our twins who just re recently became the Not Mitzvah, so Mazal Tov to them. Uh, we went to some lunch in Baca, we were in Israel and it was one of those dreadfully hot days in the summer. And for her, my wife, it was extra hot because she was carrying twins. Uh, but anyway, we, we slept over. We walked over to that place. We had a wonderful lunch. And we get there. Everybody's hot. We all introduce each other. We're all informal people these days. So I'm Chaim. I'm Moshe. I'm Eli. I'm Miriam. I'm whoever. We went around the table with first names. And we all sat down to eat lunch. At this particular meal, as many meals go, uh, the conversation immediately turned to politics. Everybody had a solution to the Arab-Israeli conflict and very elegant ones, actually, an intelligent bunch. Uh, so I tend to be allergic to politics. So my view here was, let's tune out of the conversation and eat a lot of food at this table because it looked really yummy. So that's what I did. Okay, so hours go by. We've, by then, everybody has solved the whole problem of the Arab-Israeli conflict in one elegant paragraph after another. And I had a great meal, so everybody was happy until the Moshe person said something else. And I stopped and I said, wait a second, are you Moshe Halbertal? And he said, yes. I said, I can't believe it. I'm sitting at this table for hours. I love his work. He's a tremendous scholar who teaches at Hebrew University. I've read a lot of his works. I, was sitting at, I didn't say any of these things out loud, but I continue to regret this moment. Uh, it's 14 years ago. so. Yeah, it's a, uh, I can't believe it. And of course, it was already Birkatamaz. And we were done. It was time to go home. So I missed the entire time being able to pick his brain over a million things that I would have loved to have spoken to him about. So that, that was a big miss. But fortunately, he has written some excellent books, including one called uh, On Sacrifice. He publishes three years after that uh, very upsetting lunch experience. Uh, so in the meantime, back in 2012, so uh, Professor Halbertal, he comes up with a different slant on the Akedah, which I also like very much and find very meaningful. Uh, he says that God has a different problem besides the one that Rav Kook put out. Rav Kook was focusing on how pagans could challenge us and say they're more dedicated than we are, so the Akedah solves that. Professor Halbertal says that there's an internal religious problem that God has. Like we love God, right? And God demands that we love God. So how do you express love? By giving. Sounds lovely. All right, but what can we possibly give to God when we are utterly and totally dependent on him? So Professor Halbertal likens God to the ultimate rich spouse problem. 
God has everything. God doesn't need a thing from us. We need everything from God. So if Cain and Hevel humbly offer of their produce or of their sheep, it's pretty much impossible for them to not in part be thinking, uh, here, God, thank you for what you've given me, but I hope that I'll get more crops and more sheep next year. How can you not think that? There's no way to give a real gift because every time you're giving a gift, it's really with a string attached. You really want something else from God because we're totally dependent on him. So the Akedah is the solution to the rich spouse problem that God has. God wants us to serve him absolutely, but anything we give to him, we just want more. If we sacrifice a sheep, we want more sheep. You can't do that with a child because Abraham can't sacrifice a child in the hopes of getting three more because every child is of infinite worth to a parent. And so God asked Abraham to be willing to do that. And when, he, when Abraham showed that he was willing, that was it. Now I know that you're God-fearing. Not that he wasn't God-fearing before, but this was the ultimate passing of the test. He was able to be that pure that he was willing to give something of absolute worth to God. That actually is a true act of giving. And then once again, God stifles the actual slaughtering because God doesn't, <laughs> God abhors human sacrifice. So what Ruff Cook and what Professor Halbertal do in their respective studies is they present a wonderful picture of what the Akedah does, which is it teaches us the value of being uh, extremely religious. Abraham is definitely extremely religious in this story. And one could make a case that so is Yitzchak, but Abraham is the protagonist. Okay, so that's the good news. Uh, I'll mention one other point before moving on. Uh, Professor Yeshaya Leibowitz, who was a rather iconoclastic figure in his day, he just died a few years ago, he was a really interesting thinker who lived in Israel. I mean, being an American, I think of him as Nechama Leibowitz's older brother. Because in America, Nechama Leibowitz is the one who made it more in the educational system. We read her, but Yeshaya Leibowitz was, was a marginal figure. We didn't know much about him. Whereas in Israel, he was the big shot. He was a complete celebrity. He had a radio show, many, many followers, I think precisely because he said things in very extreme ways. So when it comes to the Akedah, he contrasts Judaism and Christianity specifically on this point. He says that for us, the Akedah this is the high moment of the Torah where Abraham is willing to follow God's commandment no matter what. Christianity inverts the whole thing. Here, God sacrifices his son for the benefit of humanity, to serve humanity. I never thought about it that way, but I thought it was extremely clever uh, that, that the whole point of the Akedah for us is we're willing to sacrifice our son to serve God, but God doesn't want that, so God stops him. And for Christianity, God does sacrifice his son to serve humanity for the benefit of people. And so I thought that that was an, an astonishingly uh, sharp point. So I'll give Professor Leibowitz credit for, for that one. So now we move on. What we've talked about so far is how the Akedah teaches how to be extremely religious. But there is a problem. And this problem is not just a problem for the Akedah story. This is a problem for all religions on the globe or at least one that is a challenge that has to be addressed. Uh, Professor David Schatz, who teaches at Yeshiva University, hold on. So he wrote an article on the 10th anniversary of September 11th, which over here is, uh, you know, continues to resonate as that horrifying day where back in 2001, terrorists blew up the World Trade Center and thousands of people were killed in this murderous act. And of course, it was done in the name of religion. 
So the question, the challenge of the story of the Akedah, and for that matter of any religious system, is how do you teach people to be extremely religious, but, but not make them into religious extremists? Okay, Kierkegaard is coming up, so you nailed that one. So very good. He's like the next guy uh, coming up on the thing. But Dr. Schatz raises, the, Professor Schatz raises the issue first, just in general. How does religion solve that problem? So in comes Kierkegaard, so very nice timing. Keep in mind, Kierkegaard also has a last name that begins with the letter K, so watch out. Kierkegaard was a great Danish philosopher who lived in the 19th century and wrote a wonderful, wonderful book. I can't read it in the original, but in English, it's called uh, Fear and Trembling. It's really an excellent book that features the Akedah. So keep in mind that even though philosophy is supposed to be religiously neutral, there's no such thing as anybody being neutral. Not Jewish philosophy, not Christian philosophy, not secular philosophy. Everybody has a point of view that somehow gets in there. So Kierkegaard officially was a Christian. So even though he's trying to state universal principles, his Christian background definitely comes into play here. So what he does is he looks to the Akedah and he says like this. If you believe in, I don't mean you, I mean if anybody believes in religion uh, because it is reasonable and moral, that's not religion at all even though you might have thought that it's a good thing. Too bad on you. According to Kierkegaard, religion, if, if you accept religion because it is reasonable and moral, that's secular. It essentially becomes self-serving. You're doing these things because they feel right, not out of service to God. As far as Kierkegaard is concerned, true religion is when you're able to suspend your reason and morality in the service of God. That's why he likes Abraham in this story so much. He very elegantly calls him the knight of faith. Okay, so the logic is Abraham up until now has been doing things that make sense, serving God, he's getting blessings, but now God is telling him to do the irrational and the immoral. So when Abraham still says, look, I need to serve God, let me do this, that is true religion. So the good news is that is a great, it's a great book. The bad news is uh, Kierkegaard's philosophy, even though he was not promoting this, could easily open itself to religious violence. Right? Kierkegaard himself did not promote religious violence. Well, how could it not? If the whole point is that real religion is when you suspend morality or rationality in the service of God, then any, any religious system that promotes religious violence can turn to him and say, you see, we're a real religion. Okay, so Brit Milad, let's get back to, let's, let's just finish up Kierkegaard's arguments and then we'll you know, let's go, let, we'll go back to that after. So Dr. Schatz says that's not just a challenge to Kierkegaard's work. It's a problem for, it's a problem for any system. And he says, the, here's why religious extremism is such a danger for any religion. He says, usually, if you're trying to create a reasonable system, the best way to go about doing this is to balance competing values. You might take freedom versus responsibility. Right? Self-respect against respect for other people. Discipline against love. You can always have competing values. And okay, different people may draw the lines in different places. That's an excellent way to keep things in check. And as a result, you can promote a moral or a good value system precisely by having a balance. But in religion, you can't do that because you can't balance anything against God. If God commands something, then you have a choice. You can obey or not obey. But if you're not obeying, then you're not religious. 
Right? In other words, then you're violating the religious system that, you, that you're supposed to be following. So religion can't have balance in the same way, which means that it's very vulnerable to this type of religious extremism. So he says there's only one solution that he was able to come up with of how to go about solving this problem of how can you have a God demanding dedication but not have that lead to Kierkegaard's problem of irrationality slash immorality. So he concludes, God himself has to command that we be rational and moral. Because then it's part of the religion. There's no way to balance. You can't compete with God. But if God commands being rational and moral, then it works. So while Kierkegaard focuses almost entirely on Abraham's initial reaction to God's command, which is, oh, God commanded me to sacrifice my son. Great. I'm going to serve God anyway. And this proves, Abraham wouldn't have been thinking about it this way, but Kierkegaard could read him as saying, okay, this is real religion now. Abraham Avinu is finally doing something that's immoral and irrational to serve God. That's religion. So Kierkegaard's flaw in this argument is that, again, he fails, like Kant, to read just to the end of the story. The end of the story, the whole point is that God stops Abraham. And then if you keep reading through the rest of the Torah, you know that God hates child sacrifice. And in fact, God outlaws all immoral things. God wants us to be moral people. That's one of the central axioms of the entire Torah. And in fact, if you ask, we talked about this a little bit the other day, Rav Sadia Gaon, the Kuzari, Rambam, and Ramban, and many, many others, take for granted that an essential component of being God-fearing in the Torah is by being moral. But if the religion itself doesn't demand that rational moral conduct, then it is vulnerable to Kierkegaard's, the flaw in Kierkegaard's argument, which is then you could have religious extremism. So postmodernism is one of the scariest things. I don't know how you feel about it, but I'm going to go after it anyway, precisely because it thinks that it could relativize everything. And the hope of it is, oh, if we relativize everything, then we can all get along. What ends up happening, of course, is the religious people remain religious. And then other people don't have the resolve to fight against religious evil. That's what ends up happening. There's a really chilling book that I recommend. There was a professor of literature over here in Columbia University. His name is Andrew Del Banco. He was a professor of literature at, at Columbia University in New York City. He wrote a book back in 1995 called The Death of Satan. His argument was he tried to show how American writers, like novelists and people, simply over time expunged words like evil from their vocabularies. They changed it almost entirely. So much so that nowadays when you hear of acts of terror, usually people won't use the word evil even for that. Even government officials will talk about it in terms of it was foolish or reckless or selfish or, or cowardly. They'll use other adjectives, but not evil. And if people can't say that something is evil, they obviously cannot fight it. I didn't realize myself how bad it was in the West. The, my wake-up call was actually uh, one of my jobs when I was still the rabbi at, at the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue in New York, Sherit Israel. So we had a Talmud Torah there. We had a, a school that met twice a week, and I was its principal. And so I hired teachers. There was a sixth grade teacher teaching her class. Wonderful teacher, wonderful class, and great kids. And one day she comes into the office for help. And usually if it's, you know, if you want help, it's not an ideas help. It's, okay, I got a 
take care of some issue to make sure everybody's calm, work it all out, and then everything is fine. I did a lot of that. And I did fine. This time it was an ideas issue. She came in, she was having a very productive conversation, and she discovered that her wonderful, well-mannered, good family, well-educated sixth graders could not say that the terrorists of September 11th attack were, were wicked or evil. They were unable to say that word. The principle that they were taught in school was, as long as you're working for some ideology, that's okay, and the terrorists had an ideology. It was, that, it was really that simple. And therefore, they were working for their ideology, so we don't share that ideology, but we can't judge their ideology or the consequences of it. I was like, wow, let's test this one out and see how far it goes. So I asked them, would you call Nazis evil? They had an ideology. Let's just push it to the extreme right off the bat. And so they wanted to say yes, and then they realized, no, we can't say yes. We cannot say yes. These are Jewish kids, good, wonderful, nice kids. You'd want to be their friends, all of that stuff. And they were simply unable, based on their education, to say that Nazi Germany was evil because it had an ideology. Then I just said, then we have a real problem. I don't know how to fix it. It's like, wow. I, I mean, I told the kids this. We had a very productive conversation. But I'm like, what, if all kids in, or many kids in America are growing up with that system, we'll never be able to fight evil. And that, that's really what, it, what it's at. So Andrew Del Banco in his book, he's a secular person. He was Jewish, but, he, but, but certainly not an observant Jew, said, look, I don't want to go back to the old religious system of good and evil, but there's got to be some middle ground somewhere. He realizes that we've gone too far, and I, I believe that he is correct. So that's the problem of postmodernism, trying to fight religion in order to take away its violence. It doesn't work. The reality is that unless a religion promotes morality and, and rationality, uh, it, it's, it's, it's vulnerable to exactly the religious extremism that we, that we should all fear. Uh, so that's the purpose of the Akedah and the rest of the Torah, is to teach that God demands that we are moral and rational. The Akedah tested Abraham's limits. He succeeded and passed the test, but then God comes around and says, but I don't want your descendants ever to do that. Okay, so that's really the conclusion of, of that path. Uh, so just to summarize all of these things, and then, and then we'll open to discussion, uh, precisely because we expect God to give a moral Torah, that's how we're able to have the protest tradition here. The fact that we can ask, how could Abraham obey, or how does God give that question, you know, demand of Abraham, even as a test, these are great questions that need to be asked. And of course, it just goes back to, when we don't understand something, we are required to ask them. Rav Cook and Professor Halbertal do an excellent job in delineating different dimensions of meaning of the story, how God eats his cake and has it too. For Rav Cook, it's to demonstrate that we are as dedicated to God as pagans were to theirs, but God repudiates human sacrifice. For Professor Halbertal, the issue is the Akedah gave us a moment where we can actually truly give to God, and that's the heart of what our religious system is about, but in practice, we never actually give people as part of that service of God. God makes sure that we all learn that this is a horrifying story. That's what the whole rest of the Tanakh is about, is it teaches us how bad child sacrifice is. And in fact, the few instances where you see people of Israel bringing child sacrifice, the prophets are the first ones to attack them because this is horrifying. Uh, the truth is the question that A.G. asked. Hello, A.G. Brit Milah, too, you could argue, isn't moral or self-serving. Brit Milah is an interesting example that is... Uh, Hard to, hard to explain, but if you, once you go down this route, I think that, which I think is a good route to go down for a different shiur, 
maybe we'll have a few minutes to discuss. Uh, there are certainly laws in the Torah that may appear to be uh, morally challenging or something worse. Right? The easiest one that I always like to pick on is uh, extermination of the Canaanite population, which to me is a much harsher situation than a Brit Milah. And it's here we're dealing with an indigenous population that is there and not at war with us, and we come in and attack them. Right? So to me, that's a question, even though we are not under that obligation, fact is God did command Moshe and Yoshua to do this, and therefore it's on the books, and it is a, it's a tough moral question that does need to be addressed. And there are other questions also. So where one draws those lines, I think different people may draw them in different places. Brit Milah to me is a different issue from, I understand the question that you're raising, uh, it's, it's a different type of issue. It's simply part of the covenantal uh, system. And yes, of course, it's against the child's will, which is how the moral question comes up in our world. But it's something that would have made perfect sense in the ancient world, for sure. It's one that's a little more jarring now. Uh, but that's a separate shi, or that's one that, that is a, a worthy shi, or to go into mitzvot in the Torah, specifically obligatory ones that may raise important moral questions that we can still then ask, well, if God is demanding that we're moral, why does God command A, B, and C? And that, I think, is a great question, just one that requires its own shi, or maybe next year. Maybe with the Chaburah, we'll, we'll pick up on, on something like that. But, but the Torah gives us the challenge, and the Akedah gives us the challenge that morality and rationality must be built into every religious system, or else its adherents really risk falling into, you know, crossing that line from extremely religious to religious extremism. So I pray that all Jews should live to the message of being extremely religious without being religious extremists. And ultimately, of course, I pray for all humanity to go the same route. That they should each find, you know, each religious system has to find its own path, but to be able to make it work so that everybody could, in fact, serve God properly while simultaneously not devolving into religious extremism, which involves immoral behavior against other people. Okay, on that happy note, I'm going to pause and open up to discussion because there, there's got to be discussion with the Chabura. There always is. Thank you. I'm going to use the host privilege to come right in with a question then. Um, does this mean, um, if you're saying that everything, you know, we need to build in rationality and morality into the religious framework in which we find ourselves as Jews, then to what extent do you think that the word of God is not already moral and rational in the, to the, in the sense that um, surely anything that God commands is moral? What do we need to apply morality and rationality to it for? What, unless you say that God can command something that is not moral, in which case God is not omnibenevolent. So do you see the kind of the, the, the question I'm asking? I totally do. No, no, these are all the good questions. So, so let's, let's do it step by step by step, and hopefully that'll work. Uh, surely the Torah is the definition of morality, so it does this become circular. I think that's very similar to what Robert Sassoon is saying over here along the lines of what you were just saying. Okay, so let's is, it worth, so should, is it worth if I just let Robert ask the question as well? We can build it into the... Um, sure, absolutely, yeah. Robert. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, sorry, the lighting's not good here. Um, so I, it, it feels like it becomes circular because are, are we saying there's morality, there's kind of morality outside the Torah? Or are we saying, uh, so it, it sort of harks back to another show we had about is there something called, you know, natural justice and natural law that exists independent of the Torah? Uh, and do we believe in that? Or do we believe that the definition of morality is the Torah? What the Torah says is right is right. And what the Torah says we shouldn't do is wrong. And, and, and if you say that, it becomes kind of, you know, 
you have the danger of becoming religious extreme, you know, religious extremists if you kind of interpret the Torah in such a way. So, you know, are, are we saying we have to apply a, a, an external measure of morality that's external to the Torah, which I do find a bit contrary to what the Chachamim we know might otherwise tell us. Very good. So, so I think these are very related points. Okay, so let's back up. Dr. Schatz's point, let's just start with his point that I was trying to present. Let's make sure I got that one straight. Uh, he argues that the Torah is moral. And in fact, it's coming to teach that we must be moral. And so God, through demanding morality, solves the religious fundamentalism problem, right? God is saying, the, it's totally understood. If God were to command us to do things that are deemed immoral out there in some abstract sense, then we would have that horrible choice of serving God or being more moral. Now, Robert, you're raising the, the circularity issue, right? So there are two ways to look at that. One is to say everything in the Torah is explicitly moral because God says so. The other one is to keep our moral sense stressed on. One, one person who takes this issue up very thoughtfully, I think, is uh, Rav Yaakov Medan. He's one of the Rashi Yeshivat, Yeshivat Haratzion in Israel. So here's a 100-page long article on the whole Amalek issue, which is a very interesting article in its own right. But I'm interested specifically in how he takes on your question, which I, th which I think is very important. He sets it out like this. He says that he imagines that the Torah is moral, but he also imagines, and I think very reasonably, that there certainly are laws in the Torah that might challenge some of our moral sensibilities. So I gave the, the war against the Canaanites as an example that ruffles me, and I know other people that ruffles them also. So again, even though it's not applicable, we don't have to do that. So I feel better about that. But it still is on the books that there's going to be a, an invasion of the land of Canaan with a commandment to kill men, women, and children. So one approach is to say, well, if God commanded it, that makes it moral. So Rav Maidan personally rejects that approach. He says, no, we're allowed to wonder about this, just like Abraham wondered, hey, you're going to destroy Sodom. Is that really fair? Is that just? So he basically takes that approach. And that's the approach that I'm advocating for all. So I, I happen to adopt that view in my own life. I'd rather be left with questions of morality, not to over, we can't judge God in that sense, but we certainly can be left with a moral discomfort with some story or law like that. I don't think the Torah expects that we immediately absorb it all and say, this is what it is, right? So th that's, what, that's all I'm trying to argue for. So with the Akedah, Kant's formulation, I think, is just wrong. I think he violates the story. But I think he opens up a good question, which is, okay, how do we react to the Akedah story? That's something that a modern person could ask, even if Asian people were not as bothered by this question. Okay, so you have the Eurythro thing, thing also. Thank you for raising that. Certainly, this question has been addressed uh, not only by Jews, but this is a universal philosophical problem. So Rav Sadigaon is the one who paved the path. He argues that God chooses things that are moral to command rather than since God commanded it, it is moral. Now, so Rav Sadigaon did think that there was some moral something out there, and God obviously, therefore, legislated based on that morality. And he wasn't satisfied with the notion that since it's in the Torah, by definition, it must be moral because this is God's word. So that's the path that Rav Maidan, a, a contemporary rabbi, uh, continues to follow, and one that I find compelling, just in my own personal 
uh, study of the Torah, because after all, there are questions that I think do come up with, with thoughtful people, and, and I think that they're legitimate questions to ask, even if we can't fully fathom God's will. So I hope that at least starts outlining the question, although obviously we're going to have more to say. Okay, Josh Fitterman had a hand up. Yes, thank you so much, Rob. Um, so I guess the, the question I have is, uh, how would you apply that to um, the halakha? Because I think there's, in that case, then you have basically three problems, right? You have, either you have to choose, well, um, God commands us to be, to be moral. That's that's done through the rabbis. If the rabbis have put it down into, into the halakha, we have to follow the halakha as strictly as possible because that is the moral outcome. Or you can have the two other interpretations where you have like the Kabbalistic interpretation of, well, they didn't understand, so therefore let's reinterpret. Or you have the people who are, you know, for lack of a better term, on the more left, you know, liberal or left uh, left-wing kind of interpretation of halakha where, well, they didn't understand because of socioeconomic factors or whatever factors that caused them to interpret halakha in that way. So let's interpret halakha this way now. So I guess in theory, Hashem giving us the the commands that are moral is, is I, I would agree with that in a broad sense, but as we applied as Jews towards actually living our lives in a halakhic manner, um, I think it opens it up to, to that question, I guess. I think you're right. I, I don't have an answer for you just because I think you are right. There are different streams of interpretation, legitimate streams of interpretation that I'm talking about now of just how to balance all the competing values of the Torah itself and the competing values of the rabbinic halakhic system. And so that's why you're not going to have one codified law that we all do. That all being said, halachic commitment does mean commitment to the system and commitment to the authoritative canons of our, of our halacha. And, but within that last sentence, there certainly are many roads of interpretation, far beyond Sephardim and Ashkenazim and other Jewish communities, but even in terms of today, how to balance modern issues with the classic halachic texts and precedents. And so I, th I think it's a valid debate that just needs to be a respectful debate, always making sure that we're faithful to our sources and not distorting them for the sake of an agenda, whatever that agenda may be. Uh, and after that, it becomes an honest discussion for the sake of understanding what should we do under certain circumstances, uh, under all the circumstances that we live in today. You see this, I mean, dramatic examples in the modern world are anything to do with women's issues. Uh, the founding of the State of Israel probably even more so where suddenly halachists had to think about all these classical codes, but wait a second, we were dealing with local Jewish communities in the exile instead of a, a functioning Jewish state. So you see a proliferation of creativity and debate over, okay, how do you juggle those principles? So everything that you're saying is, of course, completely right. Uh, you would expect that there wouldn't be one right answer to any of these things. One hopes that everybody who's having these debates are knowledgeable, faithful to the halakhic system and are genuinely interested in understanding how to apply our classical precedents to new, very new situations. Obviously anything in the world of technology, science also fits that category, endless examples of that. And so I, I, find, I find those topics particularly fascinating precisely because you have these different features of what you focus on and what you don't focus on. But one also hopes that with that, going back to your point, uh, is that uh, morality is undergirding all of these discussions, along with the fidelity to the halakhic system. Okay, we turn over to Avi Garson. 
Thank you, Rabbi, for this really uh, thoughtful presentation. Um, I think I think it was part of Kant when you mentioned in passing the idea um, that, like, how could Abraham Avinu have? It, it could have been some form of imagination, right? Um, the uh, this command, um, as opposed to knowing knowing for sure that this was. God speaking to him through prophecy. Um, I remember having a discussion a few weeks ago with people about, I don't know, they were talking about stories of this rabbi, Suleyah Navi, and I mean, in the Gemaras has a lot of cases like that. And for me, the question was, how can anyone, for sh- let's say I, I trust this person said, oh, I saw Eliyahu Navi, how could they know that it's Eliyahu Navi, right? They, they might say it, they might have actually experienced something, but there is a question of, of um, you know, he he, he, he wasn't there when Eliyahu Navi was alive, and it, there's a I don't know. It's a question of imagination. You can never prove it. So I sort of I'm trying to understand maybe if, if the classical commentators were they ever bothered by this question of Abraham Avinu? You know, it was not like his father had prophecy, and you know he might have discovered God, and but this sort of command being so clear I, i'm struck i struggle with the idea of like okay maybe it was but maybe there's a could be a five percent chance it was imagination or a delusion and and to sort of go ahead with it based on some on some thoughts that um yeah i don't know if that sort of is clear the question but i mean there's different layers there's the question of what did Abraham think about his own experience and then there's the question of what do we think about his reported experience in the Torah, right? Yeah. Okay. So Kant fails the narrative. Rambam actually turns it on its ear. I didn't quote him in the Shior, but let's mention him now. I'm still very old-fashioned. I learned it to do with the Roman numerals for the sections of the book. Now people don't do that anymore, but what can I do? I, that's how I... Back in the day, that's what people did. Uh, so anyway, in that section, he specifically uses the Akedah to prove that a prophet must have been absolutely certain that it was prophecy. Because if Abraham had the faintest doubt that it was the cashew nuts or some weird experience he had with somebody in the elevator the other day that was triggering this very powerful night experience, he would at least wait for further information. The fact that he just up and goes, ready to slaughter his son and and violate God's uh, promise that Yitzchak will be the sole heir of Abraham means that Abraham was 100% certain. I could only think of one narrative, by the way, in the entire Tanakh where the Navi is uncertain that he got prophecy. Only one. And that is when little Shmuel HaNavi gets his first prophecy, the prophet Samuel. He's He's a boy, it sounds like. So he gets prophecy and he thinks it's his mentor, Eli. So there's a story where a prophet is getting prophecy, but is simply unaware because he had never experienced it before. It, somehow he assumed it must be his ma- master rather than God. But that's the only story I could think of where a prophet gets in Tanakh, gets prophecy, and is just unaware that it's prophecy. Like Eli is the one who finally puts two and two together in that narrative. Every other occasion, it seems taken for granted. It's like a, a self-assuming position of Tanakh that prophets, when they say Ko'amar Hashem, there is zero doubt in their mind. They know that they had a prophetic experience, it was real, and certainly traditional Jewish belief promotes that trust. As we read Tanakh as revelation, not as 95% certain revelation, but as revelation, which is why, of course, it's a great religion, but why us non-prophets, many of us today, uh, 
struggle because there's a distance between the characters in the stories, some of whom are encountering God in a way that we can't even understand. Like whatever this experience entailed, uh, we certainly can't recreate it and we don't have it. So I think that that leaves us at a distance from the text. I think there's a wonderfully radical midrash that I, 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 I can't, it's less chazal for coming up with these things. I would never be able to say any of them. But of course, once there's a midrash, you can quote it. Uh, it's in Shirashirim Rabbah, where they say that until Shlomo HaMelech came, nobody understood the Torah. Now, I don't know, I, thought, I kind of thought Yoshua bin Nun was good at it, and I'm sure there were others through the eras prior to Shlomo, who understood a thing or two about prophecy. So at least the way I, they, they give the, the Midrash gives this analogy of the genius who invented the thing that you and I call the exit sign. Like imagine some guy who's lost in this labyrinthine room, can't get out of there, and then some genius puts up an exit sign, so now he knows where to go. That's what Shlomo did for the Torah. Or another example they use, let's say you have a big clunky shopping bag of groceries, you can't pick it up. So a genius invented handles. And so just like, so Shlomo is the one who gave the world exit signs and handles that, to understand the Torah. The way I understand the Midrash is that Shlomo did something for Tanakh that no other writer did. He gave us the Song of Songs and he gave us Kohelet. He gave us Mishlei too. But the, the other two matter more for this conversation. Uh, Shlomo knows that the Tanakh has revealed religion, that God is giving us prophecy. But he also knows that many of us folk are not prophets. In fact, most Jews of all time are not prophets, and by now, none of us are. Okay, so we have this gap that you and I are talking about. So Shlomo, instead of giving us more revelation, gave us two books that are totally human. Shirashi Rim at its surface is the love between a man and a woman. That's something that any human being who experiences any form of love can relate to. Okay. And then if you want to turn that into an allegory of God Israel or God the religious person, whatever you do, now I can understand love of God way better than if you just tell me to love God. Like I, I see Avram Avinu loves God, but God is communicating with him. He has such an open relationship in a way that I can't. Whereas Shirashirim, okay, human love, I get that one. And Kohelet is written from a purely human wisdom standpoint. There is nothing in that book that reflects privileged prophetic knowledge. And so the advantage of these two books is that they're giving us a human insight that's canonized as part of our scripture, which is amazing. So I think that that, I think that, that Midrash is really addressing, it's not just your question, I think we all feel that on some level. We read Revelation. If you totally believe it, that's the ideal. And we trust that these are the prophets and they really got these prophecies and that they also knew that they were getting these prophecies. But simultaneously, even if you believe it 100%, uh, there remains that gap just by virtue of the fact that we are not prophets. Thank you. Okay, we have time for one or two more, I think. Any other questions? If there aren't, then I would like to push you one more time on the, the question of natural morality, if that's okay. Sure. So, so within this, would you take the position that morality is learned or there's actual inherent morality in human beings? I would say it's definitely both, at least according to the Torah. But it's, it's diff- there's, when we say morality, there's different things. The Tanakh does expect inherent in human beings that we can have a baseline level of decency which is why God can flood the world in Noah's time, even though nobody was commanded anything. 
So if you were their attorney, you could say, how could these people know that they're being wicked? Right? Nobody ever told them not to do this stuff, at least not on the books, right? It's not, not in the Torah. The answer is that that love, very baseline level of, I would call it decency, much more than high morality, is demanded of all human beings everywhere, even if they were never commanded anything. And if people are doing things that, you know, contrary to the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, which again, are a very low standard baseline of human decency, it's not a high level of religious existence, or at least it need not be, uh, one who stoops below that line is considered wicked in the Torah, even if they were never commanded and don't know. Right? In but then, yeah. So then if that's the case, then... Uh, in order to achieve a portion in the world to come, meaning some form of connection between yourself, you know, an individual and God, if you are one of the B'nai Noach, then why should it not be enough to keep the seven mitzvot B'nai Noach of, um, of one's own volition or one's own moral impetus? Why must it be because God commanded, as, as Harambam says? Right, so assuming that Harambam is right, because who wouldn't want to assume that? I mean, I, I don't know that he is, has to be right. Let's go with him. Within Rambam's system of thought, which I happen to think is, in this case, not always, but in this case, completely uh, in sync with Tanakh's view. Uh, Tanakh really is of the opinion that you cannot build a moral society without the religious backing of it. You could have individuals who are fantastic. Throughout the ages, if you want to know my favorite pagans of all time, I'm sure they're yours too. The sailors on Yonah's boat, they're awesome. I love these guys. I, I would want to be their friends, right? They're, they're fabulous. Tanakh acknowledges really nice pagan people. Not a lot of them, but these guys sure are, right? Whereas, of course, I don't need to tell you, there are many Israelites in Tanakh and beyond, uh, who, even if they do believe in one God, at least in some sense, are really wicked. And so even if the Torah repudiates that and says, okay, that's not real God-fearing anything, but still, they're not pagans in the classical sense. So Tanakh knows that you could have a, somebody who believes in one God and who's wicked, and one who is a pagan or, in, in our world, an atheist who's a truly stellar human being. Uh, that, that goes without saying. Uh, but that all being said, Harambam seems to believe, and I think fully in sync with Tanakh, that you can't build a world that, that is Mashiach uh, without the religious backing of it. So yes, of course, you could have righteous individuals, many, and Rambam will refer to them as the Chachmeu Mota Olam. They're, they're still wise sages, and Rambam holds them in great regard. But that's not the redeemed Noahide that Rambam or that the Torah is looking for. I believe Rambam's view is in sync with the Torah here, because the Torah, the Tanakh is universally clear on that point. That it's only with the religious system that you could ever have messianic era. It can't be secular nice people. Not that there aren't secular nice people. There are many. Thank you. If there, unless there are any more questions. Well, thank you very much, Robert Angel, for your insightful talk. Uh, we look forward to having you back again on the Habura. Uh, thank you so much. Hopefully. Thank you very much. Stay tuned, everyone, for the future updates of upcoming Shirim. Okay, thank you so much again for everything. Enjoy the rest of the sessions with other, with other speakers, and thank you for inviting me. And all, all the very best. Good night, everyone. Thank you so much, Rabbi.